Welcome back to the State for Performance podcast. Today's guest is a mystery guest. And the reason he's a mystery is because I had never heard of Shane and never met Shane. But then all of a sudden, this mysterious person kept popping up in conversation about his book and, his, and he, this great book that he had written. And why haven't you read this book? And I ordered his book nearly two months ago. And due to COVID restrictions and delivery stuff, it's still not here. So this podcast has been recorded in anticipation of the arrival of the book. So this is going to be Shane selling me his book maybe today. <laughs> but I'm very happy to welcome on Dr. Shane Credo. Shane, how are you today? I'm doing great, Ian. Thank you for this amazing opportunity. It's great to speak to everyone listening today. Excellent. Shane, where are you based today? I'm based in Chicago, USA. I've been here for four years now. Oh, a friend of mine actually lives in Chicago. I went to school with. His name is Christian, Christian McNamee. I know Chicago is a big city. He's, um, he's an Irish guy who works in the construction area. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, so, connect us and come visit. He may, <laughs> Christian, yeah. He's, I, think he's, I think he's got two adult daughters now, which makes me feel absolutely really old. But anyway, um, <laughs> Shane, you, you, uh, you have an interesting accent and you don't look like uh, a typical, we'll say a white American person who would normally associate right. America. Uh, you look like you have some cultural crossovers. What I would call, what's the, the opposite? People would say xenophobic is afraid of race, but I'm actually a xenophile. Well, the serious identity crisis is that what it's called, right? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a xenophile, which means I'm absolutely fascinated by cultural differences and I'm fascinated by cultural crossover. So what's the cultural mix you have going on? Yeah, so I, uh, my great grandparents actually moved from Portugal to the west coast of India, Bombay, now called Mumbai, and my parents were born there. So I have Portuguese and Indian heritage. But I was born in New York. My dad worked in an airline as a finance guy for over mm-hmm. 30 years. And so my younger sisters, I have two younger sisters, my parents, they said, well, since my dad is to live in different countries and work there for the airline for three or four years at a time, let's just move as a family and go to Kenya for three years, Dubai for four years, New Zealand for a year, and Seychelles for four years, have the kids experience different cultures, different perspectives. But Bombay was always home base. So I'm going back to Bombay for Christmas this year as well as I usually do. So you're what I would call an international gypsy. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Where do I belong? <laughs> I'm to the earth, my friend. So what, what was yeah. that like, Shane, growing up, moving to all those different countries and different cities and having all that kind of diversity? Was it, was it easy? Was it difficult? Was it good? Was it bad? What, what's your sort of view on that? Well, I had to think about that a while. Uh, in initially, as a kid moving home, it used to hurt, lose contact with friends. Some of them, we'd write letters to one another, And then we gradually lost contact. But in retrospect, I'm really grateful for those experiences. I learned to connect with so many different people, different ages, cultures, religions, backgrounds. And it truly allowed me the ability, I hope, I think, to understand different people's opinions and different points of view. And not just languages or translations, but also interpretations and cultural context. So I think that served me well in my psychiatric practice as well, considering that the world is such a melting pot right now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And the reason I asked that question is because I think there's two things that can truly transform people in the world. I think one is education. 
And I think the second one is actually travel because I find in the pre-COVID days, I had the great privilege of traveling for work a lot and getting paid to go around and meet different people. And, and especially because in work context, you get to really understand what drives people. The amount of similarities we have from places like Mozambique to South Africa to the far reaches of Canada when it's cold to Australia in the desert when it's 40 degrees to people in Singapore, we share so many things. And what divides us is actually minute, where we're like 95% similar in terms of what we're trying to achieve in this world. So that's why I asked that question. I find lots of similarities between cultures, even though we might look different or act different in certain ways. Yeah, that's that's amazing to just embrace other cultural perspectives while preserving your own heritage and your traditions. You can still embrace other people's cultures and celebrate together. Some of my Eastern European friends celebrate Christmas on the 7th of January. I celebrate on the 25th of December. And that's all good. We can celebrate Christmas yeah, twice. Yeah. <laughs> Double the presents, but double the cost. (laughs) (laughs) The yin and yang of life. Uh, Shane, so when you when you finish your travels as a as a as a kid and you sort of were I I am going to university, where where did you end up going to university? I started off with an undergrad in physical therapy in Dubai. My dad was transferred to Dubai and I studied physical therapy at the Gulf Medical College, Gulf Medical University in the UAE after which I did an internship in India with Dr. Ali Irani, who was the physio for the Indian cricket team for over 10 years. And he took me under his wing, after which I went into med school in Africa because we got transferred there again. And I said, why not go to Africa with my family? And after that, I did some volunteer work in India and went to do my specialization, psychiatry residency, as we call it here in the US, in Madison, Wisconsin, at the University Hospital and the Veterans Affairs Hospital there. There, I got connected with Claudia Rairdin, who was a sports psychiatrist. And she was the assistant program director, one of the people who interviewed me for the position. We go all around the country interviewing different hospitals for residency. And she said, what are your interests in psychiatry? And I said, sports psychiatry. And she said, no, no one's ever told me that before. And she was on a computer. She turns a computer screen to me and says, I'm working on a sports psychiatry elective rotation for residents. I'm a sports So she was amazing. She introduced me to the International Society for Sports Psychiatry. I later joined their board. During my training in psychiatry, I worked on a few quality improvement projects in helping the psychiatric department screen patients for sleep apnea, for insomnia, I incorporated it into their treatment protocols. Then I did a further specialization in sleep medicine in Madison as well. And during that time, I got involved with integrative psychiatry, kind of connecting the dots, not just, oh, here's a medicine or here's Ambien, but understanding the gut microbiome, genetic predispositions, toxic exposures like mold toxicity, heavy metals like lead and outblocks dopamine. And I've been working the Amen clinics. Dr. Daniel Amen is a world-famous psychiatrist based in LA. He does functional brain imaging. And we look at blood flow and activity in different brain regions, map that onto neurobiology and neurophysiology. And then we know what those brain regions do. We know if they're not working well, what issues someone might experience. Then we know what to look for, what to change. So we kind of approach brain health 
as whole body health and whole body health and brain health are actually mental health. That's what I do in most of my waking hours at Amen Clinics. I also have a private practice where I do international sleep consults. And I'm also on the board for the International Society of Sports Psychiatry. I've been so fortunate to meet incredible sports psychiatrists who have helped me along the way, amazing mentors every step of the way. I'm now in charge of innovation and technology for sports psychiatry. And I'm also affiliated with the US Olympic Committee, the NBA Players Association, the PGA Tour Europe, and the Australian Football League as well. Oh, excellent. I think we might have lots of crossover. So the University of Western Australia, where I did my PhD, and I currently have an adjunct position there at the sleep lab there, the Center for Sleep Science had a lot of crossover with Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so Peter Eastwood, who used to run that, has now gone to Flinders University in South Australia. Peter, I think, did, I think he might have been pre-med at Wisconsin for a while, but he definitely spent some time there uh, as a postdoc as well. And a number of the people um, at, our, at that lab have been postdocs at, at Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. So it's, lots, it's lots of- It's away from Chicago and the Center for Consciousness is in the same building as the Sleep Center, Wisconsin Sleep. And Julio Tononi is a chief sleep researcher, the consciousness researcher there. That's where they do lots of stuff. Uh, I think uh, affiliate with the Dalai Lama around meditation, consciousness, yeah. sleep. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've followed- I was going to say Richie Davidson's work. Yeah, so I've- yeah, so um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's another part there, which is it's quite interesting. We actually looked at doing um, just on a side note, doing some work in this area a few years ago, looking on silent retreats at the effect of silent retreat on sleep. And we collected just some pilot data to play around with and did some questionnaires, but we didn't find much of a signal. And then sort of COVID hit, and a lot of the silent retreats got stopped because we have a Taravadan monastery here in town where to do ten day silent retreats or three day silent retreats. I've been on a number of the, the three-day silent weekend ones, which are quite good. But anecdotally, I found myself that I came off quite refreshed and slept quite well. And and maybe it's the reduction of the stress and the no access to electronic devices and the no activity, which is actually making me feel better. Um, or is it more that the the need for sleep is less because of that? So we were trying to kind of work, look around at a mechanism around that and... Um, there are a few theories there, right? We know that transcendental meditation can drop your cortisol and stress hormone levels by 30 to 40%. And we know that one of the main factors when it comes to insomnia is, and insomnia is not looked at as a lack of sleep, but a preponderance of wakefulness of, of the brain. So we have busy lives. We're always occupying ourselves with our gadgets and communication with other people. We don't allow ourselves to be lost in our own thoughts. We're scared yes. of our own thoughts, right, Ian? And so maybe a silent retreat is a way of kind of like processing all those thoughts, finally allowing your subconscious mind to release them, allowing your brain to maybe be at peace and therefore allow you better sleep. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Jack Cornfield, the meditation teacher, I think he's got a PhD in psychology and was a former monk himself in Thailand. He actually says, if what he's got to say, I don't know if it's his or not, he said, uh, when you meditate, he was saying uh, it's like going to a bad neighborhood, but being alone with your thoughts, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's it can be quite frightening for some people to sit there in silence or without that external activity. But I think you're right. I think because we don't get a chance to process that or daydream. And I know Carl Young used to do that a lot. He would walk around the kind of a days, you know, dreaming about things and and just sitting there and, and sitting back about the world. And I don't think we probably do enough of that, which 
then allows to an increase or a build on stress on top on you know kind of a year on year day on day building up of stress and then it does affect our sleep and we never get a chance to kind of clear out the deck so to speak or brush out the the noise and the, the crap that's in the back of our brain really by processing it so yeah. yeah, I think Carl Jung referred to the integration of the shadow. I love shadow work. Yes. And the stuff that we avoid, we don't want to face. But if we run away from our shadow, we can never get away. And the longer we run, you're an ultra marathoner, right? So you probably run hours and hours and hours. You know that the shadow will just get bigger and bigger unless we face it and integrate it because it's an essential component of our lives. Like, the part of the iceberg under the surface of the water. We have to understand it if we have to know ourselves. Yeah, and and I I couldn't agree with that more. I think you're right. I think it's and I, as you're talking, it remind me of what Schultz Nitzen said in the the Gulag Archipelago about the line between good and evil runs down the middle of every human, you know. And I think we all have the ability to be, you know, lazy, sneaky, sly, manipulating, but we have to understand those things. Um, and try to work on minimizing them and be an all-around, you know, better person, really. So I think all of these things playing to stress minimization, understanding yourself, which I actually think, like Shane, as we're as we're kind of talking about this here, I think it's probably a part when we talk about chronobiology and we think about this yin and yang symbol, like about overnight being the recovery and the sleep, but it's also just as important about what we do on the day that sets us up for that good sleep, which is and also the good sleep for setting us up for the day. So it's this kind of, but no symbiotic relationship or oh, enabler. Completely. And, and the research supports that as well. Even when it comes to research on rats, they find that the same areas of the brain are active in their dream sleep, REM sleep, as they are active during the day. So the areas, the working memory of our brain, the temporal lobes and hippocampi, as you well know, are the same areas that are responsible for creating the dreamscape. Yeah. So what we're doing during the day is going to impact our dreams and our sleep. And if we're anxious or worried or dealing with, with bad situations during the day, we will revisit them and consolidate them in our dreams. There's really cool research as well uh, looking at PTSD. And it suggests that maybe after being traumatized, people should not be allowed to sleep that night because then they don't consolidate those negative memories and they found that PTSD symptoms 10 days after an, an emotional trauma dissipate down to almost nothing if you've been sleep deprived the night after, as opposed to getting sleep and having symptoms increase over the course wow. of the following week and then remain. And so what so obviously that's the mechanism about the consolidation of the memory, but also as well, is there any sort of facilitated cognitive work where people are trying to work through those problems very quickly? Does that have to be facilitated or is it just a sleep deprivation independent of any cognitive behavioral therapy? Oh, they just looked at depriving people of sleep the next night. But wow. wouldn't that be powerful, right? If we could actually engage in some some strategies to to reduce their danger mode circuit overload to reduce the fight flight frozen mode response reduce the cortisol burden maybe a safe environment to do transcendental meditation or maybe even microdosing with psilocybin and then guided meditation or therapy immediately after the trauma wouldn't that be something Jen, we're going we're going down a great rabbit hole and i'm going to chase it here with you even if we don't talk about your book today we'll have you back on again so let's chase this one because just right now at this time we're recording one of my episodes has just come out 
with Daniele Duchowski from the Czech Republic, where we just re, we just spoke about her paper, where she looked at the effect or the impact of psilocybin um, doses in patient in 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 participants and the effect on sleep afterwards. So she was administering psilocybin in the morning and then looking at the effect on sleep architecture overnight. And she had that published in the Frontiers in Neuroscience a number of months ago. And I think this is opening up a whole new world about the treatment of drugs, the use of these um, so-called illicit substances or banned drugs on these things, because if people aren't familiar, there's lots of research coming out about psilocybin and depression, which is coming out of, I think, uh, the work by Rick Dublin and Maps and John Hopkins. There's the work then coming out looking at um, which we had recently on Jennifer Walsh from University of Western Australia, CBD being very effective for insomnia, which has been published in sleep. That was a massive uh, trial that went on recently. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and have a listen to that with Dr. Jennifer Walsh. And then we also see that people with PTSD, so obviously, Shane, you're talking about before PTSD has been, you know, kind of, you know, being assigned to the person or being described, um, being diagnosed. People afterwards with five MDMA facilitated sessions with CBT with a practitioner or psychologist basically significantly or eliminated PTSD. So these type of plant-based medicines can have a wonderful effect when used correctly. Amen. Absolutely. I feel that this is where we need to intervene, especially with the military vets all over the world. Why don't we start working on preventing PTSD, knowing that there is a yes. body of research that already exists rather than inordinate resources, surgeries like ganglion blocking surgeries, deep brain stimulations, hor horrendous medications. And I'm a psychiatrist, but some of those medicines are frankly harmful and psychiatrists don't do due diligence. Why don't we work at preventing this stuff instead of spending billions of dollars, countless lives broken permanently, treating it after the fact? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I've been um, on my other podcast, Learning to Die. I had uh, Dr. Chris Letby on, who's a philosopher. He's written a book called The Philosophy of Psychedelics. We had him on recently discussing about um, the use of psychedelics. We, um, I've also had lunch recently. I went to a lecture with a guy called David O'Shaughnessy, who studied computer science, psychology, and did a PhD in anthropology in South America, looking at the practices around ayahuasca and shamanism, and looking at basically, you know, the scene, the setting, the process, the kind of, um, uh, what would you call it? Like the, the rigor routine, the, um, the ceremonial aspects of it as well, which are just as important because even in those people who went through the ceremony, but didn't get ayahuasca still had transformation, transform, transformational experiences. So again, this just shows that facilitation in conjunction with, you know, whatever we're given them, has the power to, 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 to improve people's life. Like we've seen in lots of placebo-based studies as well, that people come back and look for the placebo and you say to them, it was a placebo. They're like, yeah, I know, but can I get more? And it's like, it's just <laughs> sugar. And people still will come back and ask for the placebo because the mind has convinced them. You know, so it just shows how powerful the mind is in terms of change and how we view the world. Isn't that fascinating? Because if these psychedelics or other strategies like we discussed hypnosis before we started recording can reduce the ego, reduce the conscious mind's control to allow our subconscious to, to shine through, tap into the subconscious and then guide people through the subconscious to release that, that emotional burden. I think that's where the future lies. 
Yeah, and I think also as well, uh, a kind of a note of safety. I, I, I just had John Caldwell on my podcast recently, and John's done a lot of work in the US Air Force and NASA, and he's, speak, he's spoken about having, um, he, he's done a lot of research on amphetamine use, you know, in pilots when they're sleep deprived. And we spoke about the practicality of not having like, you know, a thousand pilots and a thousand aircraft. It's not as simple as just rotating them and so on, particularly in theaters of war. But like John said, people think that pilots are just taking amphetamines as they see fit. Like there's a bucket and they just grab it like candy and eating it. No, it's under very strict circumstances, administered by the flight surgeon. You know, uh, any any dexamphetamines left over have to be taken back and so on and so on. And I think it's the same for these type of substances, whether it be MDMA, psilocybin, uh, marijuana, and CBD, whatever you want to call it, whatever we use. It has to be facilitated controlled and not open to abuse that's that's the that's the key part because if it's not used right we'll be back where we were in the 70s with timothy leary and ramdas and we'll all be just you know tune in turn on drop out whatever they were saying and you know we just completely will be back to you know people being just walking around in a daze it needs to be facilitated i think completely agree yeah this is not this is not very uh focused on sleep but I think the important thing about this is about these things that do impact sleep, such as PTSD or people having high stress levels. And I think what we've explored there, Shane, a bit is these mechanisms that can potentially reduce these things uh, on people's sleep, because obviously cortisol inhibits the release of melatonin, which then impacts people being able to get a good night's sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sleeping is the most vulnerable thing that we do, and cortisol, stress hormone, danger mode danger mode is incompatible with sleep yeah yeah shane um your your recent book that you published um is very much focused on athletes uh, you've obviously got that kind of background there like that people would say we're, we're somewhat esoteric in science meeting there together but you've also spoken about military and so on and you spoke about sports psychiatry but what what kind of got you onto the sleep part? What what, what kind of jumped up? Because a lot of people don't kind of go, oh, I want to be interested in sleep. It's not like a dream of people like to become an astronaut. So what made you kind of latch on to sleep? It started with my work in psychiatry and I was training at one of the best programs in the US, Madison, Wisconsin. But I felt that sleep was being ignored among our patients, our psychiatric patients. So I started doing my own research. Why should I just give a patient trazodone or Ambien without fully understanding the, the mechanisms underlying their sleep issues? Then I found that the research is pretty robust in saying that we need to treat the sleep issues separately and concurrently with the psychiatric issues. And the more I read about the overlap and how psychiatric medicines can adversely impact sleep outcomes in terms of worsening restless leg syndrome, worsening sleep apnea, worsening central sleep apnea with opioid pain medications, and looking at restless legs being fixed by iron deficiency issues, correcting those, vitamin D and the impact of sleep. I realized I really would be doing my patients an injustice if I didn't learn about sleep separately. So not many psychiatrists go into sleep medicine. They directly go into practice or do addiction psychiatry or child and adolescent psychiatry or forensic psychiatry. But I got more and more interested in sleep while also being involved a bit in sports psychiatry. In the sports psychiatry world, I was pretty surprised to see even the most elite athletes and teams 
we're being given sleep hygiene flyers before going to international yeah. competition, right? You Google print out a PDF and say, here you go, this is going to help your sleep. And athletes focus on everything. They measure every vector, every movement, every rep, what they eat. But somehow sleep is falling off. And when I was involved in, in certain teams and working with athletes, there were sleep coaches, some people calling them sleep coaches when they had just done a little webinar or a course or read a book and decided that they were going to be a sleep coach. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I had an athlete who uh, had a manic episode because a sleep coach had sleep restricted them. And uh, there are athletes who can have seizures because of sleep issues and sleep restriction. So I realized there was a huge need, a, a huge deficit there in the sports world in terms of team doctors not really having an education in sleep and the impact on brain health, the concussion overlap with sleep issues too, mental health and performance outcomes. So that became my, my passion because there was so much to explore and so much to, to learn. So I did my learnings. I learned a lot of integrative psychiatry, integrative sleep, and I decided to to write the book. I decided to write the book a couple of years before I actually wrote the book. And uh, my ex at the time said, Shane, you've been talking about writing a book for two years. What happened? So <laughs> I said, I'm busy in clinic. Well, let's make the time. So we sat down, we figured it out. And I just, I had all the information. It was just about putting it together in a coherent way to help as many people as possible. So the book is called Peak Sleep Performance for Athletes. And it's all the skills, all the sleep techniques I use with my elite athletes for everyone to have access to. Because we know that sleep is a modifiable risk factor for the most common causes of death and morbidity in the world. Road traffic accidents, cancers, dementias, heart attacks, strokes, sudden death, diabetes, obesity, 89% of kids who are sleep deprived go into develop obesity, 55% of adults with sleep deprivation going to develop obesity. So imagine the power of sleep. It's like, I always say, right? It's a divine gift. Sleep is a divine gift. We just, we're not given the user manual. And so I think it's, it's people like you, people like me who want to provide people the user manual to truly exploit this fountain of youth, which is sleep. We just need to know how to use it. And one size does not fit all. It's very specific. Yeah. Like your prototypes, your sleep needs, your, your training, your recovery time, time zones, training times, competition times, qualitative sleep issues, timing, duration, sleep cycles versus hours of sleep. It all goes hand in hand. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think Shane, we're probably aligned there. Our journeys have been somewhat similar on the opposite side of the planets and, and in similar but different professions because that's exactly where I've got to recently in my research as well um, and working with other people. It's the same thing. I think this, this group approach, um, and I would say probably since about 2010, we've seen a spike really or an increase in the performance-related or athlete-related research across the world. And I think whilst... There's still lots to do. I think now it's time to move on. And we've been, I've been doing this for a number of studies is starting to look more at individual data and individual characteristics like you're saying um, about chronotypes and so on, because I think treating the whole group as a team, as this group average is just not good enough anymore. There's so much variation. 
And then the other thing, uh, and I published some work on this as well, looking at the potential prevalence of sleep disorders and problems in elite athletes in an elite super rugby team. We did this paper and we did overnight PSG, like level one in the lab, which is like the gold standard. And um, to, to my surprise, when that was published in 2000, I think in 18, uh, it was the first published paper with elite athletes doing level one PSG. And there's only a few then that have done level two PSG. There's been one other done that I know of doing level one PSG, but looking at the effect of electronic devices, which I was a co-author on, but there is still a scarcity of research out there on these issues. And so we are, we are trying to, you know, I think it's fair to say we've met the outline of the shape of the character and now we're trying to color in sections and coloring in those sections is some from the research that's been done on athletes and some is kind of borrowing from other similar things like military or shift workers. And we're trying to color in all these different shades to try and shape and color this picture in to give the advice and to allow people to chart a pathway through. But we've had very similar experiences in terms of um, trying to give people the pathway to, to success, which is not easy. It, there's no one size fits all, as you say. Absolutely. And this is a unique opportunity for us to truly impact the world. Yeah. I mean, I work with athletes. I work with people from all walks of life as well. I work with dementia patients and we see the impact of sleep there. So imagine, I mean, my, my hope for the world is that when more and more people have access to, to your work, your podcast, the book that I published, and more work that we hopefully collaborate on in the future, reducing the disease burden for the world and reducing yeah. healthcare costs for the world, that would be something incredible. Yeah, I had this conversation with, do you know Amy Bender? Yes. Yeah, so I spoke to Amy this morning and... Um, to, on this point as well, I feel like, you know, maybe we're fighting a losing battle because of the internet. And whilst the internet is great for providing information um, across the world, and like we said, there's so much info out there, but the bad part is there is so much info out there. There's so much crap about just do 90 minute sleep cycles. And if you focus on getting more deep sleep, you can do it by the power of the mind. And you hear all these crazy things that get said. And because people have got highly produced content on Instagram or videos or they're out there to promote a device or they've got some exposure because they've been on a Joe Rogan podcast, whatever people kind of, you know, just blatantly swallow that shit and, and it kind of gets frustrating. So we're constantly trying to fight. No, I wouldn't say fight, but we're constantly trying to keep up with that and, and, and squash these misnomers. And we're trying to provide current advice that keeps changing. And I feel like sometimes we're getting over because people still struggle with sleep and some of the basic things are, are still not known. And like you said as well, some people are reading a book or doing a course and next minute they're a sleep coach or a sleep specialist. And I've come across probably in the last 10 years, I would say probably about 10 people who call themselves doctors and don't even have a PhD or a medical degree. And they call yeah. themselves a doctor in this sleep area. And I'm like, this is just absolutely flabbergasting. That's, that's a great point. And there are two points that I have to, to, to your point. One is that, there are some people with millions of followers and sometimes I see what they post and I'm like, oh no, how do yeah, we yeah. change this is terribly wrong? But we can't. So as the saying goes, we're flooded with information, but thirsting for wisdom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it depends on who we listen to. And I think we've lost the ability to critically think. I don't know if it's an educational system issue. I remember when I was in school, uh, we had to write our answers down. We had to write 
essay like answers whether it was uh, talking about a physics issue, I was terrible at math and physics, by the way, uh, whether it was a history question, whether it was a, an English essay, I learned the clauses, uh, English grammar, right? Now it's just MCQs, where's the critical thinking there? I mean, when you write, you kind of have to play around with how you're writing, how, how someone else is gonna interpret your message, and it's gonna make for a really well-rounded educational experience. We've lost the ability to critically think. I think our education system is to blame there. Not just in the US, I think it's, it's happening yeah. in a lot of countries around the world, right, Ian? And one of my things that I'm working on in sports psychiatry is to provide sports teams and sports organizations an understanding of how truly integrative sleep needs to be for the athlete. And so, um, as I said, I'm in heading innovation for sports psychiatry now for the ISSB, International Society for Sports Psychiatry. And my first initiative is to create a sleep performance committee where the committee will be setting about establishing maybe sleep guidelines, position statements, and helping other teams and organizations understand that sleep can be different roles within the sports team. For example, the nutritionist can, can learn about sleep strategies in terms of performance, what can help athletes function better the next day before competition, what kinds of smoothies or, or food can help them sleep better the night before competition. The average athlete loses out on two hours of sleep the night before a big game. We want the team doctor or uh, the physician assistant to be able to do some basic screening tools for sleep issues and identify more serious issues, right? We want the sports psychiatrist to know the impact of some of their medicines on the athlete's deep or dream sleep. We want the data analytics people to work with the coaches and crunch the numbers in terms of looking at sleep and actually performance outcomes. So each one has a role there. And if we can in my role as an MD in the clinical space, understanding the impact of the medicines, sleep meds on psychiatric issues, psychiatric meds on, on sleep issues, as well as the microbiome, the genetics, that the toxin load, and then have everyone kind of distribute the, the burden, if you will, because there is a severe deficit of trained sleep, qualified sleep practitioners in the sports arena, especially, then we then we have something of a movement. I think that's a great a great thing that you're talking about there, Shane. And, and a thing I often will draw on a whiteboard in talks is basically a triangle. On the base of a triangle is time. Up one side of the slope of the triangle, from the left hand side to the apex of the triangle, is strength and condition or performance related things. At the peak of that triangle is performance, whether it be a match or a game or whatever it is. On the other side of the triangle should be recovery. But I skew that triangle to where it's like 90% all strength and condition and performance, 10% recovery. Then I'll break that out again. And I will talk about how much of that percentage of that skewed kind of triangle is basically around sleep. And you'll find that it, it, if you look at kind of sleep recovery models, sleep will be the base of that pyramid and the number one you know, recovery modality. But what happens is in, in true form is that actually is flipped and invert, inverted where people want to do cryotherapy, ice baths, jump in the ocean, get a massage, put on a compression boot, go in and hot and cold pools, um, you know, eat some protein uh, enriched meal, drink some drink, uh, drink milk, do everything, bar sleep. 
And it's we need to get back to one about having balance. And I spoke to Brandon Marcello on my podcast last year. Uh, Brandon does a lot of work on uh, uh, training and recovery. His PhD was in that area and he works with the US military. And he's taught, he basically has the, the concept that there's no such thing as overtraining, there's just under recovery. And when you think about it in that respect, it's, it's an interesting argument to have because people are not allowing enough time for recovery uh, between sessions or between things. And like with the sleep world, over time, recovery needs become different. Age, size, sport, physical load, the recovery for a fighter uh, between an MMA bout could be three to four months for some people, whereas a basketball player can do a double header or a tennis player, you know? So the, the, the demands of the, of the, of the task are quite different. Like in formula one, the, the travel, they're constantly crisscrossing the globe. It's nearly like a shift worker doing a week on week off. So, or, or an airline pilot, like your, your dad was like, or working in the airline industry and in this area, we're constantly moving around. And I think that's the part that we're, we're missing is that again, getting back to not having this group think we, we have to have these specific pathways through and understanding these different things and, and what lines up, but we need to start kind of from a philosophical point of view in teams and in sports and in businesses, we have to understand the importance of recovery because if we keep going, going, going hundred percent and we don't have time for recovery, now it's a mathematical issue, not a sleep issue. If we're not allowing enough time and like what we spoke about at the start with the esoteric type of conversation we had, so to speak, it's just as important what you do during the day as what you do overnight. So there has to be a balance on this triangle, I think, and I'm trying to push it back where it looks like more of a triangle and not this skewed, you know, a triangle that's going to fall over. So that's kind of like what I've been thinking about over the last six to 12 months in terms of articulating this. You're taking me back to eighth grade geometry, right? The equilateral <laughs> triangle. I couldn't think of the name. That's an equilateral triangle, triangle. yeah. <laughs> Tell me, I'm curious to know, uh, have you found any conclusive research telling us that if you've trained at an aerobic pace for one hour, how much sleep do you need in terms of recovery for that one hour of training? Is, is, have you found any consensus there? I haven't run any studies on that and I haven't seen anything on that. And I think to your point, I think there's, we have so much data, but we don't have the horsepower in terms of analytics to look at those things at the moment in terms of the training load and the effect on sleep afterwards. I don't think we've got that um, advanced really. And I think we can, and that's where we need to bring more data analysts into the fold to have, yeah. have these questions answered. Do you think there are any companies or startups or anything out there uh, right now crunching those numbers? Or do you feel it's just different studies, different researchers, different countries who are doing their research and then it's available, but the data isn't being analyzed? Or is it, or is it like in Formula One, are they looking at the numbers? Are they analyzing the sleep uh, performance inf information? Not currently, no. We'll be doing some of that work next year in, with McLaren, but I don't think that um, many companies are doing that. I think the only, I, and I could be wrong here, I'm going to speculate here, I think some devices are doing this in an automated fashion where they're looking at the sleep, they're looking at the activity by sheer count of movement, not related to the person's BMI, VO2 max or anything else, and they're using that in terms of providing a recovery or a readiness score the next day. I think that's about as sophisticated it can get because right. the, the reason is, I think, Shane, if, if I've got a VO2 max of 
60, for example, and another guy's got a VO2 max of 40, and we're both the same weight, we're both the same age, my recovery from a one-hour run is going to be quite different than his recovery. And so we have to have those variables, I think, considered as well. And I, I, I am unaware of any research that's shown that. I did see one paper a few years ago in the US military looking at Air Force pilots, and they found the opposite inverse relationship for OSA. They found that people with OSA in Air Force pilots had a higher VO2 max, which I find that very strange. That is strange. It's very strange. That's a very, that's, I, I would, I, I would have to dig and I didn't have access to the data it was in a paper, but I would, I would have to question the diagnosis of the OSA there and uh, the, even the severity of the OSA, because if it's a, it's an OSA with a very mild severity, like, you know, an AHI apnea hypopnea index of five to 10, maybe it's not severe enough where we see at the up at the higher levels, obesity levels being over 40, we see that more severe 30 AHI per hour or more. So maybe it's the magnitude of the severity of the of the disease, but yeah, I I think I think you're onto something there. I think that needs to be done. I think even the relationship between uh, output during games, you know, with GPS systems and these catapult systems that measure distance, this needs to be looked at. We did look at the distance run in games. Uh, so Tim Smitty's, who's doing his PhD at the University of Limerick at the moment, looking at cognitive performance in esport athletes. Tim did his honours degree with me here at University of Western Australia, where we looked at travel and jet lag in an elite rugby team. Tim did look at the relationship between output um, in terms of like meters run um, and performance and sleep, and there was no relationship. And we also did the same thing in an AFL team a few years ago for an honours project. We didn't publish it, but um, same thing as well, found no relationship. So yeah, but I think what you're talking about is more about the individual and the dose-dependent response in terms of sleep that's required for every hour of activity, potentially. I'm going to re-harvest some data next year looking at the activity, heat exposure in a, in a remote mining environment and the impact on sleep, because that's another one that people ask about as well. So I'm going to look at, see if there's any correlations in that data with ambient air temperature. So if I walk 5Ks on a mine site in a workshop environment, I'm exposed to 40 degrees Celsius heat on day shift. Do I get 20 minutes less sleep potentially for that? Pressure, right? So actually working with more resistance. So you're going to be burning more calories. You're going to be losing more energy. Potentially, you yeah. from Your fluids, your electrolytes, and your calories to compensate for that, that higher pressure, more humid environment. And different sports will have different performance metrics, right? We're not going to use the same performance metrics in yeah. rowers as you do with your Formula One athletes. So it get, we can get into the weeds very easily there. Yeah, and I, and I think like, you know, a lot of people will, will ask these questions or will talk about these things and then they'll kind of go, well, these guys don't know anything. And yeah, you're right, we don't. Because I think anybody that says they haven't answered is, is telling you lies. So yeah. um, I, I always say to people, the first answer that a good scientist will give you is it depends. And it's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> it, de- it depends on on the scenario and the circumstances. And, you know, people will often ask me after maybe an edge, if I do a, a talk or an education session, people will ask me a question and somebody else will ask me a question independently, like in private. And then they might come back to me later on and go, you told John X, Y, and Z, and you told me A, B, and C. I'm like, yeah, cause you're two different people. Yeah. Yeah, but we had the same problem. Yeah, you did, but you had different presenting factors, I will say, or different, you know, contributing factors and different outcomes you wanted to achieve. So they're different answers. And that's the problem. Everybody wants this cookie cutter approach to, 
to the problem. So it, it can be difficult, but, uh, but, but I do think Shane, that you're right in terms of we, we do need to bring in other specialists to start working in this area as well as like computer scientists, data analytics, these people can, I think, can really unlock uh, lock the value like we've seen in other biomedical sciences. They can really help us. You look at um, radiography is a classic one, isn't it? Where lots of the radiography is going to be like basically machine learning, AI, reading it over and over again and can be better than even some of the, the doctors in determining, you know, the potential prevalence of an issue. So, or, or the prevalence of something or picking up on a broken bone. Like that's that's technology and data. That's That's going to revolutionize that area. Yes, and that's why we need, as you rightly said, many different experts, because we can do all the CBT for insomnia in the world and track performance, even specific performance metrics. But what if someone's gut microbiome is not working right? What if they have mold exposure? What if their diet is rubbish? Yeah. Then those are all confounding variables, right? So there is a great need for experts from all these different fields. I don't like in in the sports world, how sports psychologists may feel, no, we've got this. You don't need a sports psychiatrist or, you know, the other way around. But sports psychologists have such an important contribution to athletes in terms of mental resilience, while sports psychiatrists like myself can work on concussion healing and medications and integrative sports psychiatry, looking at the medical factors and the whole body impact on mental health issues so we are all collaborators in this together we have the same objectives yeah and i think um one of the things i had taught on the weekend actually i went to watch um to do this thing here to do it in australia i think to do it all across the world actually where to have a movie on the screen in a theater not in a movie theater but in like a place where they can play music like a music theater or whatever it might be they'll have a movie on the screen but they'll have the orchestra, a live orchestra playing the score of the movie. I don't know if you've ever seen this. So we've been to like a few of the Harry Potters like this to do Star Wars. Yeah. We went to Love Actually on the weekend. So it was actually, it was, it was quite, it was quite nice. We went on Saturday afternoon, but I was sitting there and I thought about, I was actually watching the whole thing going on. And I thought, and it's, and it just kind of gelled there for me now. I think the type of work we do, Shane, is we're like the conductor. We mightn't be experts and conductors. And I had a conductor on my podcast last year, Nicholas Book, who actually does a lot of these scores and used to travel the world doing this stuff. And I think the conductor, he mightn't be or she mightn't be an expert in all of those musical instruments, but to know enough about music to bring that all together, to bring out a song or a piece of music or a score, whatever the correct terminology is. And I think that's what we can do is that people in the sleep field, we can be the conductors to bring all those components together. We might necessarily know all of them, but we can bring them together to bring out the best optimal outcome for the individual or the team. And that's what I feel like our role is. Um, I think this morning in another conversation, I said, I feel like a bit of a traffic cop. Stop there, bring this in, you go, you come in, let's take this, drop that, now go. You know, And that's what I think we have to do. Um, we have to kind of piece all those things together because it's an ever moving beast. And in physiology, as you know, there's no one answer. And humans are so like variable. I, I think like if, if you spoke about maths and physics, I absolutely fascinated with physics. I haven't got a clue what's going on, but fascinated by that subject. But I think to myself, I should have did a, I should have done a PhD in, in engineering or physics because there can be just an answer and there can just be an outcome. We're in physiologically related subjects. <laughs> it's just endless. It's like trying to, 
we might as well be in theology trying to find the answer to God. Like it's just endless. It's on and on and on and ever changing. That's how I feel about it anyway. Oh God, I completely agree. And, and <laughs> what, what if we're tracking this, this team and we're doing everything we can in terms of sleep and performance tracking. And after a game, a couple of the guys go and drink beers all night. It's going to throw the entire study off. Yeah, that wasn't yeah. Bad, right? Yeah. And, and that's exactly what happened in a study of mine that I published looking at caffeine. So the, uh, we had, we had, um, we had a group that was basically, we tested them, tested their saliva before and after the game, looking at caffeine levels, the caffeine strategy was completely wrong because they peaked after the game. So, you know, complete mistime of caffeine, the average, the, the game occurred between sort of 8 PM and 10 PM under lights rugby game. So very physical, the average time that people went to bed, sorry, the average time of sleep onset was 2.20 a.m. Okay. Now, people would say that's very late, isn't it? But when you think about finish at 10 p.m., have a shower, have something to eat, maybe have a drink, whatever it might be, and that's, that's actually not too bad. But there was people falling asleep as late as 7.30 a.m., right? Number of people. Shane, it gets better. There was three people that didn't even go to bed. They were that wound up. Wow. Right. They were that wound up from the game and had a few drinks that they could not sleep and didn't sleep till the Sunday night after the game. I interviewed those three people thinking it was an anomaly in the data. And I interviewed them and I said, one on one, is this normal? They're like, every single time, can't sleep. Just completely wired after the game. And so the group data shows average of 2.20 a.m., massive standard deviations. So you can't just say to everybody like sleep hygiene principles or whatever. You've got to kind of nearly group those people into these bins of the people who don't stay, people who stay awake, the people who go to bed at half seven in the morning, the people who fall asleep at 2.20 and so on. And the year before that team had the same issue. And then what they used to do was bring people on a recovery session at 8 a.m. Wow. Which we got rid of. But anyway, like that's the sort of thing that will happen in a real life scenario. And all the lovely, beautiful clinical lab settings and all the reviewing of literature will not help that whatsoever. Exactly. And that brings to us to a point, right, Ian, is that a data a study may exist, but is it replicable in real world situations? Oftentimes, no. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a big that is a big problem. So Shane, let's let's jump back to your book because I'm interested to know um, if someone um, orders your your book and to pick it up, what would they expect to be reading about in this book? What's the kind of topics you discover you you unpack and discover we can discover in this? Well, the book is is divided into different sections, different chapters, and each chapter is devoted to a particular topic related to sleep. So I start off with giving people an introduction and telling people what sleep is in terms of athletes and how how many athletes are really affected in terms of sleep problems now athletes may not think it there's a problem they may think well there's nothing wrong with me there's no real problem here i'm sleeping fine but are they getting optimal sleep there's a huge difference between normal sleep and optimal sleep and every every percentage of performance is is massive in the sports arena as we well know so the, the book is divided into, well, okay, how are athletes different? Why do athletes have a lot of sleep issues? What are the different factors impacting athletes' sleep? Chapter two delves into the direct impact 
on sports performance, specific aspects of sports performance, specific sports, what's the data show us in terms of the direct impact of sleep problems alone on sleep and performance. And then of course, what about the benefits? What about 30 minute naps? What about strategic napping? What about sleep extension? What are the performance improvements that we can see? Chapter three dives into the hidden impact on performance. We think about the impact on the whole body systems, understanding cortisol and stress hormones, inflammation, obesity, testosterone depletion, reproduction, the longevity, cancer risk, diabetes, all that kind of stuff, immune system modulation. Chapter four dives into the, the bi-directional impact of sleep issues on concussions and concussions on sleep performance as well. Chapter five talks about the basics, just the very basics of sleep regulation and rhythm, just for people to understand how sleep works, the circadian, the homeostatic or sleep need system, to know the basis for any intervention that I lay out in the rest of the book. And so chapter six starts off with what I call the pyramid of peak sleep performance. And the pyramid has four different levels. Level one of the base of the pyramid is where we discuss sleep saboteurs. So discussing hidden factors that sabotage your sleep. And depending on what kind of factors we identify, they can seek out specialists, whether it's a psychiatrist, a sports psychiatrist, whether it's identifying a screening for potential sleep apnea and then getting the right treatment there in order to fully diagnose and treat those conditions separately. Because without addressing the underlying factors or level one factors, sleep will not improve. Yeah. Right. Um, then we talk about level two of the pyramid or sleep metrics. Sleep metrics or sleep tracking differs greatly when it comes to athletes. For example, the stop bang questionnaire is used for diagnosing a screening sleep apnea, but it was designed for obese elderly males uh, prior to surgery. How does it apply to, to athletes? When we look at the criteria and the stop bang screening, age over 50, BMI or obesity, so BMI over 35, how many athletes do we know over 50 with BMI? Maybe a sumo wrestler, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So there's specific, specific sleep tracking metrics and, and tools for the athletes. So I discussed those. Because with any intervention, we need initial measurements, then we intervene, and only then can we track changes over time. And then level three of the pyramid, uh, those are chapters 9, 10, and 11, we discuss strategies for setting up a sleep-healthy lifestyle or the toolkit for your sleep performance. I cover the bedroom environment, nutrition, even how to choose the right kind of mattress or the bedding and the pillows, healthy sleep behaviors and how to correct unhealthy ones and healthy sleep thoughts. So cognitive behavioral strategies there, identify and correct unhealthy or sleep sabotaging thoughts. And chapters 12, 13, 14 focus on the very top of the pyramid of peak sleep performance. Uh, specific sleep strategies at the very top of the pyramid. And that's where the science of sleep becomes an art. So we cover in 12 and 13 chapters, cover the best sleep supplements, not just for sleep, but also for wakefulness, the strategic use of light 
understanding and changing your sleep rhythms based on your chronotype, based on your training times, based on your performance times, based on travel strategies, how to bank sleep with strategic napping and sleep extension. And chapter 14 is devoted solely to sleep uh, travel strategies. Short haul, long haul, turnaround times, yeah. time zones, and what the data suggests in terms of east versus west coast, going westward, going eastward, and how you can minimize jet lag. And so when you arrive at your destination, you're already at your peak. So Ian, I don't suffer from jet lag anymore. I was in Ukraine in August. I was in Western Europe in July. I was in Dubai in October. No jet lag despite the travel, because I know exactly what we know what to do. This is easy stuff. And then, of course, chapter 15 is about next level stuff, where the future goes in terms of using data analytics and how each one can do their part. Anyone who reads the book can share the message with their friends and families, share it with like-minded people like you. Connect. Let's create a global community where we're like-minded, where we give people the best data that, that we can give them, so they can implement those changes in their lives today. Yeah, that's 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 excellent, Shen. And as you're going through all those chapters now, overview, I think there's lots of um, crossover with my research interests as well. So I'm really interested to have a look. And obviously, I've published in some of these areas as well. Uh, most recently, like the travel and jet lag consensus statements and papers that we've had out, um, which was a big international collaboration. And I think that's exactly right. I I. I uh, I often say to people, you know, the people I have in the podcast are the people that I would like to have in the Avengers of sleep. It's the group that comes together when we need the best people. You know, we want to try and bring all these different skills in. Sometimes we need a Hulk smash and other times we need a, a, someone that's good at archery like Hawkeye. So we need these different characters at different times to come in and, and do these different tasks for us and, and to connect people to the right people and to, like you say, um, optimize or hit that peak performance and I, it's really interesting like what you've spoken about there in the future because at one end you've got at the end of the book you've got this future where it needs to go but equally important how you start the book is interesting because that's something I said to people as well you can do all the things you want to do about optimizing performance but you have an underlying sleep disorder or problem that you don't sort you will never be able to optimize it at the end of the day. It's like buying a $400 car that has no engine and say, I'm going to race it in NASCAR. It's not going to happen. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Synchronicity there again, Ian. I always talk to my patients in my psychiatric and my sleep practice who say, doc, just give me a medicine. I just want yeah. to deal with the anxiety, right? Um, I say, okay, you want a medicine. It's like putting jet fuel in a broken down car. What is that going to do? Let's fix the engine. Let's, let's change, change the, the battery out. Let's do what we need to do in order to, to truly build you up from the ground up because that's going to be sustainable. That's going to be replicable. And the process, the process of retraining your brain to sleep better is a beautiful thing that is fulfilling your purpose in those little moments being a better version of yourself for you there is joy in in learning those strategies there's a, a joy in retraining your brain i tell my patients i don't want you to feel worried or apprehensive about all these strategies i'm teaching you i want you to have the attitude of a toddler a curious adventurer 
And mm -hmm. toddlers, they, they crawl all over the place. They try and run. They can barely stand, but they do with excitement. They fall down, they get up again. So rather than, than face sleep, like, oh no, another terrible night, I assume. No, why don't we just embrace it? As Viktor Frankl said, with paradoxical intent, have fun with it. Well, okay, I, my sleep has been crap for the last two months. Let's have fun and see if I can break my record for the least amount of sleep tonight. So the entire, all the anxiety falls yeah, off yeah. and you might actually have the best sleep of your life. Yeah. I love Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Made What a, a great book. It should be mandatory reading for everybody. Talk about adversity and uh, improving. Definitely well worth a read for Christmas if anybody's got some downtime. It's a, it's a book that's kind of divided into two parts. The first part would blow your head off, I think, in terms of what he went through. And the second yeah. part then is more about his, uh, I suppose, his psychology and psychiatric type work that he's done. But Logotherapy. Logotherapy. Fascinating, yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I've actually, um, I've, I'm going to, I've got it here on the bookshelf. I'm going to, I'm going to read it again over, over Christmas. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite interesting. And if we look at each other's bookshelves, we laugh. <laughs> oh no, this is almost the huge overlap, I'm sure. I'll, 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 it's a it's a very weird bookshelf I love when people come into the house and they look at the bookshelf and then they look at me as if like I don't know if you are completely mental because <laughs> you've got everything from the Bible to the Bible sits beside letters from a Stoic Rousseau is on the other side and then Ion from Carl Jung is on there as well uh, and then we've got Musashi the novel sitting beside a treasury of Irish fairy and folk tales Sitting Beside Heart of the Great Perfection uh, by Alan Wallace, who's a Tibetan Buddhist guy. So there's all sorts on that on that bookshelf there. I don't know. I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm going crazy. <laughs> I, need to, I need to get some of the books you just mentioned as well. That's incredible. Shane, I'm going to uh, wrap up this podcast with one final part I want to explore with you because we have had a few kind of slightly uh, left of center conversations. Um, what do you think is the purpose? We don't actually have a lot of dream discussions on this. We're very sleep science focused and it's something I'm going to probably push into in, a, in the next coming, coming months. Um, what do you think is the purpose of humans having dreams? There is some research to support an understanding of dreams. So as I mentioned earlier, the hippocampi, tiny areas in the temporal lobes, create the dreamscape, the topography and the timelines. We also know that we rehash in our dreams what we're experiencing, what we've experienced the previous day, what we're experiencing while we're asleep and what we're anticipating the next day. Additionally, more research has shown us that those people who have occasional nightmares, not nightly nightmares in the context of PTSD, but occasional nightmares, anthropologists suggest that it may be a way for the brain to kind of have practice runs in terms of dangerous situations. So they found that people who have occasional nightmares have quicker responses and better responses in contingency planning when it comes to dangerous situations. So memory consolidation, experiencing what you've experienced in the, in, during the past day or days, memory consolidation, but also anticipation, preparation, and practice. Do you think that there's uh, any 
validity to the fact that a dream might be like a precognitive function, a precog function for the future? I think so. And our dreams are a way of our subconscious mind or unconscious mind bringing to conscious awareness what may be out of our awareness. So in Madison, Wisconsin, where I studied my medical training, I also had a mentor called Jim Gustafson. He's a psychiatrist, also a psychoanalyst who was at Harvard and has been a psychiatrist for over 40 years. He also played professional tennis. And he wrote a book on dreams and he was a big Jungian. He had read Carl Jung's books on dreams, Freud's books, and he's written his own books. Every Monday evening, Jim and I, I'm this little uh, resident in his late 20s and this guy's in his 70s. He and I sit down and we talk about our patients over the past week, talk about their dreams and have dream analysis sessions. Those are some most fascinating sessions uh, I've ever been a part of. So grateful for those opportunities. And let me give an example of, of how our subconscious can speak to us in terms of metaphors. With a patient example, during my training in psychiatry, there was a Vietnam veteran who I was working with who had suffered from PTSD and he was stable on medications for many, many years. He comes in one day and he's nearly in tears and says, doc, the PTSD has come back. I don't know what to do. I thought I'd gotten over with it. I said, well, what happened? And he said, I had a terrible, terrible nightmare last night. In the nightmare, he dreamt he was back in Vietnam. He was behind a broken wall with his gun and he saw three Viet Cong approaching and he was ready to shoot them from behind the wall. And he looks down and the gun is gone. And he, and he panics in the dream, he says, what am I gonna do? The first Viet Cong person comes across and he surprises him, grabs his gun, shoots the other two and then strangles the guy. And so he survives the dream, but wakes up in a panic and a sweat. He could not sleep the rest of the, the night. First thing he comes to the clinic and says, doc, I don't know what to do. It's come back. It's come back. It's come back. My demons come back to haunt me. I said, well, what happened? Was your wife giving you trouble again? Or was it, was it a really stressful time in your life? What, what, what happened? No, no major stressors. But, you know, I forgot to take my meds that night and I was feeling lazy and I said, I'm not going to get up and go get my meds. So I just decided to sleep. But in, I knew that the medicines he was on have a 48 hour life. It's not going to be, they're not going to get out of his system if he missed yeah. them one night. So through dream analysis, we found that in Vietnam, his weapon was his gun. Today, his weapon are his medicines. And his enemies were the Viet Cong in Vietnam. Today's enemies are the nightmares. He was without his weapon, his medicines that night. And his subconscious mind told him that despite being without his weapon, he could still survive and overcome. Yeah, this is interesting because this is nearly like some people just need to have a nemesis the whole time and someone to fight against need to have a weapon. Some people just need to and a bit like Viktor Frankl who we spoke about and a bit like Jordan Peterson talks about we need to have purpose and meaning and sometimes we need to focus away from the nemesis and focus on improvement ourselves or focus on our own direction as opposed to picking battles against things and to get out of that cycle of I suppose I don't know what the, the correct terminology be, but I think sometimes when you get yourself in those battles you just get dragged down 
and it can be quite yeah. debilitating. A chronic issue can become a central focus of our lives and yeah. it becomes what in psychology we call observer bias, right? It becomes a central focus. It becomes everything. And then medicines or people in our lives or situations can become a crutch. But as, as the saying goes, loss is nothing but change and change is nature's delight. So embracing change, embracing change and understanding that we can persevere. We can find the tools we need to move forward in life and learn from those opportunities. So I think he, he left a, a happy man after the, the session and his PTSD was under good control. If we had not delved into understanding what his subconscious mind was teaching him, he might have self-induced a worsened, a more extreme PTSD response for several months or years. Hmm. It's interesting. Jim, one final question. Um, and this is not going to be an easy question, I think. Uh, over the last number of years, we've seen um, some studies come out in rats showing that DMT is potentially a release during dream states of sleep. Um, some people then hypothesize that you know DMT is released when people die, that this may explain these near-death experiences. Um, and then we obviously have in Tibetan culture, we have the bardos that people go into for 49 days after they die to go through these phases. So two parts of this question is, do you think the process of dreaming might be preparing us for post-death? And secondly, do you think that it is DMT that's being released during our dreams uh, from the pineal gland? And uh, I'm happy for you to speculate here. If you don't have any scientific references, don't feel like you have to justify it from a scientific perspective. I welcome speculation and, uh, yeah, ran randomness here. <laughs> It is fascinating, isn't it? We think about in South America when they use DMT from the toads, I think the, the poisonous oh, yeah. toads, right? And they have these out-of-body experiences. These, I think they remain more connected. It's, there's some research with anesthesiologists in the U.S. as well that look at um, near-death experiences and they say that what if it's the microtubules within our brains which, which store the information outside of our bodies and maybe consciousness can perpetuate? It's fascinating, right? Who knows what, what those near-death experiences may hold? But could DMT explain how some people with near-death experiences can, can tell the surgeon, hey, while you were operating on me to save my life, your, your pen fell out of your pocket and rolled under yeah. uh, the, the gurney. And that's where it is. And the surgeon says, oh no, my favorite pen. He goes and he finds the pen yeah. there. How could the person possibly know that? Is that a DMT experience or is that a microtubule? Uh, <laughs> a, a consciousness that per persists outside of our physical bodies. Uh, and that's what makes life interesting, right? A given system can understand a system only as complex or less complex than itself. And I think someone gave the anecdote of the ant on a sidewalk and a car goes by and the ant doesn't try and figure out the internal combustion engine. The ant knows its place and its role and it's going to continue <laughs> walking down the sidewalk to deliver the sugar granules to its ant babies, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 absolutely crazy. But I think um, in 2022, I'm going to start maybe focusing more on these big, big kind of esoteric, weirder questions that we have because they're worth a discussion, even if people do laugh at us, because I think in classic sleep science and in chronobiology, sleep medicine, these type of conversations really aren't happening that much. And I think we still don't know the true function of sleep. So I'm going to push it next year with some questions, uh, uh, try and get some people on to talk about that. I've been exploring the relationship between folklore, mythology and sleep as well, because I've been talking to some of the people out of the University College Dublin folklore department who've been collecting stories from people from the back in the 1930s when Ireland was sort of liberated from the UK in the early 20s. And one of the things that, you know, listening to those stories and and finding out is that how good we are as humans at using storytelling to transfer information. And I think that's what's going to keep us um, informed in the future. A classic example is there's a there's a burial tomb in, in Ireland called Newgrange. It was actually built before Stonehenge and light shines in on the 21st of December, which is next week. Um, and it's a passage where you walk into and there's three kind of chambers inside it where people have been buried. Now, over hundreds of years, there's been stories that it was this big giant called the Dogda, which was, um, you know, kind of like nearly related to the sun um, at the time. And that the Dogda owned this place in this bend of this river where this, this big... Um, burial chamber is and it's massive like the stones around it weigh between one and nine tons and have come from about 30 miles away and nobody knows how they got there it's a fascinating thing uh newgrange it's called and so people said that the dog that lived there and then you know it was cursed because the dog that had uh sex or incest uh insects incestual sex with another member of its clan a year and a half ago, Shane, from bones that were excavated from that place in the 70s actually showed that people were actually, the people that were buried in there from DNA analysis did have insexual sex, in, incest, sex, sexual sex. So they were basically related. And I think there was combinations of father and daughter, mother and son buried in there. Like that is absolutely phenomenal to me. But those wow. stories were in our culture for hundreds of years that that's what went on by these mythical creatures. But then when they found the actual physical evidence in there, that was the story. So it's this kind of, you know, that's a very strange kind of story to, to be transferred down, you know, over time. And I think even if you look at some of the early philosophy on sleep, like um, Socrates and people like this and Aristotle hypothesized that when we have food, that the vapors from food went up into our brain and made us feel sleepy. But that was obviously a time of day effect, like a circadian dip. So there was these kind of, you know, very basic relationships that they were looking at cause and effect at the time. And I think that's where we might be with, you know, dreams and death. And I, I personally speculate that there is a relationship between dream and death for some reason. I don't know why. I've always felt like that when I've been first studying sleep, even though I haven't got into dream analysis. I think the purpose of dream is something got to do with our crossover into, into death and whatever's next. Well, if you think about it, Ian, you're, you are onto something. Because I've studied regressive hypnosis, as I mentioned to you before we started the recording, and I think there is a common path. There are many different paths to tap into the unconscious mind. One of them is meditation. One of them is um, remote viewing. One of them may be regressive hypnosis. All these different pathways to the unconscious mind. There's, there's studies. There's in, in Virginia Medical School, 
800 kids were studied and some of those kids would have dreams and tell the parents, no, mommy, I'm not John and I'm, I'm actually Jacob and I was in Ireland and this is my family, not my real mom. I had kids of my own. And the parents say, oh no, what's, what's wrong with our kid? But these researchers actually traced census records in other yeah. countries that the kids would have no clue about, but the kids were speaking about factual people who had lived and died in those areas. I think I watched a lecture. It might have been Brian, uh, Brian Weiss or somebody else. I remember watching this lecture on YouTube. If I can find out, I'll put it into the show notes. And it was exactly that where it had a guy, a kid, I think in like the 90s or the early 2000s, who was always waking up screaming about being on fire and in a plane. And he had all these crazy memories. And it turned out that this guy, he said who he was and he had these memories of like, I can't remember exactly, but it was like, how would he know that? And it was a fighter pilot that went down in World War II who the plane was on fire. And he was always like, oh, I'm burnt here, I'm burnt here. And it was it was really crazy where that like the hair is set up in your neck. And there's multiple stories of, of that happening. And so... You know, and I know as well birthmarks in certain areas. That's what I was just going to say. Birthmarks as well. Yeah, it's crazy. It's weird. Like how 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 do you explain that? And I think people will laugh at that. People probably listen to this podcast laughing at us, and that's great. I think it's fascinating because there is so much we don't know, and the relationship between these things has yet to be discovered. And I just think if we keep asking the questions and keep talking about. It, we we'll keep moving closer to it because it's a fascinating subject and there's still so much we don't know about it. And I keep saying this podcast as well, that sleep medicine as a discipline has really only been around since like the, the 70s, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. What was it, the 80s when it got formed or something? Yeah, and and sleep, sleep fellowships or training in sleep medicine only started in 2008 or something. Yeah, we're still in the infantile you know, period of this area. There's so much we don't know. So yeah. Shane, I brought you on here to talk about athletic research and we sort of front-end loaded with esoteric stuff. Then we spoke about athletic stuff and then we went back to the esoteric thing. But you know what? That is absolutely great because that's the purpose of this is to have a good conversation, be nice and open and discover these shared interests and uh, for people to get more broadly interested in, in you as a person and your work. And I think, you know, if people want to find out more about you, um, it now would be a good time to let them know where they can go to find out more about you and more importantly, where they can go and get your book, Shane. So my book is available on Amazon and Kindle. It's called Peak Sleep Performance for Athletes. And people can contact me on my Instagram. My professional Instagram is Peak Sleep Performance. They can DM me and my website is shanecreata.com. I'm kind of really working on revamping the website. So if anyone wants to contact me with questions or information about sleep, I always post stuff on my Instagram. And if they want to have consults set up with me in terms of the integrative sleep approach, where I look at medication, supplements, the gut microbiome, toxins, hormone imbalances, everything combined, whether it's someone who's just looking at improving their sleep apnea or their insomnia, or someone who wants to be performing better at work or athletes can DM me, figure it out and schedule a good time to, to collaborate and work together. I work with people from all over the world. So my Instagram is peak sleep performance. The name of the book as well on Amazon and Kindle. And Ian, I'm looking forward to continuing to speak with you, connect with you and collaborate with you in the future. Because I think 2022 is going to present some really interesting opportunities in sports psychiatry, the sleep overlap, and it would be an honor to collaborate with you on, 
on research and, and work with teams and athletes to further our cause. Definitely, Shane. And uh, if you wouldn't mind just holding on a couple of minutes uh, while we wrap up, uh, for all those things that Shane spoke about, they'll all be in the show notes as always. And if you want to get in contact with me, head over to sleepforperformance.com or send me an email. And if you have any ideas for guests that you want to see in the future or any topics you want me to cover, let me know. As always, thank you very much and sleep well. <laughs>